On this edition of Music Day, a verified hit, we'll be discussing reshaping the musical landscape with musical legal eagles like Kendall Minter, Bob Celestin, Vinnie Kumar, and Bernie Lawrence Watkins. We're going to get the people what they want. That's what I'm talking about. Hello, everyone. My name is Kendall Minter, and I am happy to uh, share this podcast for the Living Legends Foundation Music Day, which is a verified hit. Uh, today, I have several of my colleagues that are joining me. And for the next hour, what we would like to do is to share with you some of our legal legal insights into things that are going on in the music industry today that are germane, that are important, that have presented new challenges, obviously, given the timing and the pandemic that we're all facing, but also back to the nitty gritty, the weeds of the business itself what's happening in the digital, in the general marketplace, what are significant changes to deal structures, what's going on for independent artists, should they remain independent or should they strive to be signed to a major? We're also gonna talk about some of the hot button issues about streaming, royalties, challenges, calculations, and bottom line, we're gonna get in as much information as we can over the next hour. Briefly, I'd like to introduce my esteemed fellow colleagues and co-panelists, um, first, we have Bernie Lawrence Watkins. Bernie Lawrence Watkins is a graduate of Howard University. All right. She uh, went to the School of Business at the university, as well as the University of Baltimore School of Law. She resides in Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Atlanta. Thank you. I'm there as well. And uh, Bernie's career has been uh, really buoyed by her representation of numerous artists, producers, writers, managers, independent labels, entrepreneurs, folks that want to be, ought to be, should be in the music industry. But some of the names that you might be familiar with that her clients have touched one way or another creatively are Drake, Eminem, Lil Wayne, DJ Khaled, Beyonce, Chris Brown, Future the Baby Usher. And it'll probably take me about another hour to list them all. But suffice it to say, Bernie is in the class all by herself, as well as being classy and very articulate, educated, and a fantastic representative of her clientele. Next, and in no particular order, is another good Atlanta-based, is Atlanta panel, a colleague of mine, Vinnie Kumar. I'm sure if you exist in the planet in the music industry today, you are well aware of the giant behemoth non-major but major independent distributor and music publisher called Empire. Well, Vinnie Kumar is the Vice President of Legal and Business Affairs for Empire Publishing. He also works and does a lot of legal work for the distribution division of Empire, uh, Empire being primarily based out in the Bay Area. Vinnie's translated his passion for music and, and arts into a career of entertainment law. He's worked with Teddy Riley at Future Records. He's also been involved in Universal Music uh, Publishing in their Miami office. For the past 15 years or so, Vinny has been practicing law in Atlanta. He's a partner with uh, his uh, partner in firm of uh, Scott Keneally, who I also know is also a, a professor as well. And his enthusiasm led him to teach music business and principles of music publishing as an adjunct professor at the famed SAE Institute in Atlanta. He's also a frequent speaker at numerous conferences, panels, and conventions. So thank you, Vinny, and welcome aboard. Last but not mean, by any means, no means the least. And that's only because he's from New York, but you know, that's my hometown, so we won't be hating. Uh, Bob Celestin, he's a graduate of Yale University and the Columbia Law School. Bob has been practicing for over 25 years didn't know that, man. I thought you were only like about 30 years old from the way you're looking. So Bob started his, his legal career at a huge firm called Kay Scholler, for those folks that know the legal uh, framework of large firms around the country. Then he went on from there to Arista Records, which was really founded and brought to success and global recognition by the legendary Clive Davis. He went from there to work as the vice president, general manager of Uptown Records. Um, and at Uptown, he was involved in the careers of Mary J. Blige, Heavy D and the Boys. And some guys known him as Diddy, some known him as P, others known him as Sean Diddy. His parents knew him as Sean Combs. Later, he worked for Untouchables, uh, the home of Pete Rock and CL Smooth, and Donnell Jones as Vice President and General Manager. 
He also worked with my esteemed friend and colleague, Louise West, when they were representing Timberland and Missy Elliott and Genuine, setting the pace in New York City. Uh, Bob has been involved in the careers of tons of artists. Most recently, unfortunately, um, someone we worked on together at the later stage and Bob during his early stage was Pop Smoke, but also um, a number of other artists that have been not only gold and platinum, and I guess as you look around Bob's wall, he's got enough gold and platinum on his wall for all of us to walk away with Rolexes and a whole bunch of jewelry once we melt it down. So that kind of speaks to his success. So without further ado, welcome panelists and welcome audience. I'd like to jump into just talking about some of the challenges that our clients are facing these days, really since the beginning of March, brought on by this global coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19. Obviously it's impacted immediately and most significantly the live engagement and the touring business, which has decimated the pocketbooks of many, many artists. Um, but if you all in no particular order would just like to share some of the most significant challenges that your clients are facing in light of this pandemic. Sure, I'll step in to say that artists today are really facing the great challenge of how do they earn revenue. So they have to think of creative ways because they cannot tour the way they were touring prior to March of this year. So online um, avenues, it seems to be a way of engagement for them, but there's still a challenge of how can they truly profit online and how do they advocate the ability to gain the necessary exposure so that they can, it, it's, it seems of value to them. Um, you know, being, you know, performing online, doing shows online is great, but monetarily, it's not the same as being able to sell concert tickets where people are paying $200 for a seat. Yeah, I, I would add on to that. Um, I agree every, with, with um, Bernie's saying, I think the biggest issue for a lot of the clients that I represent is, you know, monetizing their brand and to the extent that they have brand awareness prior to the pandemic, try trying to maintain it. Uh, so obviously, you know, in lieu of touring is really how much content can you not release? Good quality content, obviously, and particularly uh, with respect to recordings and being able to put music out on a consistent basis, um, but also trying to figure out how you can align yourself with other brands um, by continuing to build your social media influence and your fan base, such that those, such that those brands will be attracted to you and in, in, in many instances actually pay you um, to advertise uh, or market their products uh, to your fans. Yeah, and, I, and I'd say, um, you know, just uh, piggy, piggybacking off of what uh, Bob and what Bernie said, I think, you know, from a live touring perspective, of course, that's that's been decimated. Um, people are kind of pivoting and starting to do new things. I've seen a lot of, um, you know, for example, like Timbaland and Swiss Beats has done this like whole versus thing, which has become really huge, like pitting, you know, pitting artists against each other and letting them play their catalogs and like a very fun way. Um, and I think that's generating a lot of interest. I've seen, um, I've seen producers and artists move to Twitch and just start, you know, uh, beat makers are making beats live online now and people are, are subscribing, people are gifting them, you know, money for, for watching um, these programs that they're kind of putting on. So people are just shifting the way that they have to uh, kind of come up with content and how they can really engage their fan base. Um, I think the other thing is with when we're talking about revenue, I can say from the from the empire side, I think everybody kind of underestimated what the revenue was going to look like, you know, in a in a pandemic. I mean, you figure if people are all at home, then what are they going to do? They're just going to be listening to music all the time. But that's that's not exactly how it goes. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of music consumption that happens in the car, in on the bus when people are, you know, uh, just different transportation. Um, you know, when people are jogging, things like that. So 
you know, a lot of people were, were, were talking to me and they'd say, oh, well, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but now everybody has nothing to do but listen to music and, and stream uh, other forms of media. But that wasn't the case. Uh, everything kind of dropped for about a month um, uh, across the board, about 20%. And I think we're now, people are kind of shifting their daily routines and figuring out new ways to, to do, you know, not only their work, but um, their leisure activities. So uh, now it's, it's basically back to where it was, I would say from a, from a digital revenue perspective. But, but again, you know, on the, on the live music side, it's, it's a lot of pivoting that had to happen. So we're talking about a lot of content, um, uploading and streaming and things along that line. And we all know the streaming revenues are significantly less, not even to mention less than digital downloads, not to mention less than CDs were back in the day, but definitely less than going out and working each night and getting 10, 25, 50, 75, $100,000, $250,000 a night. So how do you bridge or how are your clients bridging that huge gap? And are they struggling or are they finding the uploading of new content and trying to brand themselves online is a sufficient placeholder? I would say I've seen a large significance um, as it relates to uh, TikTok in terms of the use of TikTok. A lot of artists have turned to TikTok to reinvent themselves, um, generate the youth in terms of recordings that were, were not heard of uh, in a while to uh, regenerate them. Um, also, some of my clients have these challenges that, that are going on to help promote a song that they are putting out and trying to grow. Um, so, they're just doing different things that will constantly keep the brand out there and trying to create a vibe as well as um, anything that will help their song and their music go viral, the artists go viral. I've seen a, a, a large increase of these challenges that are being done online. Um, and, you know, another thing that I've seen as well, and I, I don't know how effective it is because not everyone can stream um, live concerts. That's been a problem area because if you don't have the proper lighting equipment, the proper technical equipment, the sound is, just does not come off the same. So um, that's, that's been a challenge for a lot of artists. Um, but there are a few streaming companies, technology companies out there that are working to, um, are looking to work with independent artists to help them to get the brand out there in a the form of streaming. Got it. From my perspective, Kendall, what I've found is some clients are struggling and I think a lot of it has to do with, and they're, they've, they've, they're not having a, a, a um, reawakening of the importance of financial planning, right? And so I'm sure all of us here, when we're, when we're talking to our clients, especially the younger ones, we try to impress upon them the importance of, you know, taking care of their money. Don't go and the first check you get, go down to the strip club and spend it all. You know, go buy a fancy Benz or whatever. Um, so a lot of them who listened, you know, are being able to ride the storm to some extent. Those who haven't are struggling. Now, as a result of that, one of the ways I, I'm seeing a couple of clients I was doing, talking to a, a company now, earlier this morning about some clients are now looking to sell to third parties uh, a portion of their catalog or their royalty streams um, on the publishing, uh, sometimes producer royalties, sometimes, sometimes sound exchange uh, royalties as a way to get in cash. And because uh, royalties uh, are something that a lot of major investors, hedge funds are getting into the business, there is another source of revenue for clients who are willing to either sell outright a percentage of their catalog or at the very least sell their royalty streams for you know multiples 
of, of whatever their earnings are uh, in, uh, as a way to get uh, you know, money, sometimes substantial, you know, high six, sometimes seven figures um, into their bank accounts. Yeah. Um, and I'm, and I'm seeing, you know, with, uh, I'd say with artists and, um, with artists primarily, I'm seeing just a lot more content. There's a, they're wanting to put out more, put out more albums, put out more singles, um, just have more in the marketplace that they can be generating money from. Um, I think there was, you know, there was of course a challenge when this started because everybody was isolating at home. So nobody was able to film a music video or anything like that. So we, I started to see people kind of get creative and do different things, you know, uh, do more lyric videos, do more, you know, animated music videos, just anything that they can use to put out the content and then promote it as well. Um, and then, like I was saying before, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, uh, you know, in addition to the TikTok stuff that Bernie was talking about, um, I am seeing a bunch of a bunch of uh, artists, producers going on Twitch. Um, uh, a lot of producers these days, uh, they've been starting to make like, um, you know, loop packs or drum kits and selling those. I've been seeing more and more of that, uh, you know, more licensing of that type of stuff. Um, uh, one of the producers uh, that I work with, Illmind, he 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 has like a really interesting business model. He um he, he's one of the guys. He went on Twitch. He makes beats all day on Twitch now. That's like his thing, nine to five, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and uh, and it's you know it's monetizable. Um, and then um, you know recently he did a thing where he took a a sample pack, made one of them, and he started you know just put it on eBay, and he was like you know one person can own this, one person can have the rights to it, and it's been doing really well. So I think it's just about uh, no matter what you're doing in the music industry, just being creative and thinking of out of the box ideas uh, that everybody else isn't doing, you know? Um, and, and also just, just content, just people can record. You're at home, you have your computer, you, ha you have your mic, you know, probably some sort of Pro Tools rig. Uh, just keep recording music and putting it out. That's, that's, that's the best way to increase the, uh, the income. So Vinny, a footnote to, to what you just shared without giving away any proprietary in-house secrets from Empire, given the fact that you are at Empire and given the fact of Empire's market position as a respected digital distributor, are you guys seeing, because of all of this content that we're now talking about, real additional significant revenue streams coming through the system and going back out to the content providers, or is it pretty flat? Um, I, well, what I was saying before, I think it's, you know, uh, without, without delving too much into it, I think we're, we're kind of back to where we were before the pandemic, but I will say that there are a lot of uh, new ways to monetize, you know, if people are kind of thinking about that type of stuff, um, you know, before uh, TikTok, these, you couldn't really monetize these things. These are, these are all monetizable, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram. And then on top of that, you're seeing, um, I'm sure you all have heard that tons and tons of people are ordering Pelotons at home. Um, so, you know, I think syncing music to like a workout routine, these are all new uses that are now, um, you know, additional revenue streams for, for the artists. So uh, there's a lot of that type of stuff, a lot of, lot of new uses of, of music now. And Kendall, I'd like to add something else to that as well. I've also seen a lot of uh, songwriters who wouldn't typically do a publishing deal consider doing a deal during this time period. And a lot of publishers are finding a lot of writers right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are. They are. Um, let's talk about revenue again and leveraging the revenue because Bob touched on it briefly, but I'd like to just give you all an opportunity just to maybe share your own opinions. As we know, in these times when people are looking for money, when our clients are looking for money, quite often they'll come to one of us and say, um, how can I monetize um, by getting some money in hand right now in a lump sum? One of my income streams, typically publishing, could be from a PRO, could be from publishing. There are a number of companies, which we're not going to start naming now, um, that are in the marketplace that actually fund royalty streams. 
Um, what I wanted to do is to share with our audience just your opinion on um, the bewares and the due diligence that should be put into by any artist, songwriter, producer in the <clears throat> event to monetize one of their royalty streams with an existing royalty funder. All right, so I'll, I'll, let me let me jump in on this because I'm in the process of doing it. Deals this way, so part of the consideration is there are some companies that want to enter into these deals where they want to own the copyright to the composition, right? Um, and they want to own it a lot of times in perpetuity, versus companies that want to only participate in the stream of income being generated by the composition. Therefore, the artist still maintains ownership in the copyright, um, but can also monetize uh, the asset um, as opposed to just getting up ownership. So that's usually part of the biggest caveat. But obviously, if there's an ownership aspect to the transaction, usually the money will be a lot more. Um, if it's a, a transaction in which, you know, the royalty streams are the only thing that's being leveraged, then the uh, the amount of the uh, of the money is going to be, or the amount of the deal will be a lot less. So to me, it, it really depends on where the artist is financially, right? Obviously, as counsel, you explain to them the benefit of giving up ownership versus you know, giving up uh, the royalty streams. Um, and of course, my advice is always to maintain ownership. Yeah, we all know how important that is. But in some situations, the money is, is, is sort of like really, you know, ridiculous, such that the artist will say, you know what, I'm still young, I can continue to make more music, you know, I'll, I'll, they can have it outright. And, and, and then I, I will, I will you know, make more music. I'm still young enough. I can still make more music and uh, keep it moving. But that, 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 the money is such that I can take care of my family and my family's family and all of that. So those are the things that, that you know, are part of the consideration. You know, we can talk about, you know, how long, you know, the deal will last, you know, all the tension and all these different things. But that's, those are the general, the broad-based conversations I'm having with some of the clients who are interested in this. Right. I've, I've seen situations where the money was not a lot, and these were from the perspective of the talent just needing some money to put in their pockets. And um, some of the songs were relatively valuable songs, but it was just an, a, a desperation move on behalf of the talent. And they, the interest rate that they have to pay back is just ridiculous, uh, in yeah. my opinion. Uh, they're ending up paying back more than 50%. Um, and the companies, even if they were to, um, even if they were to get the money within six months and could pay it off, the companies would not allow that option and will want to hold on to the intellectual property for a period of 10 years which is ridiculous to me um, because in my opinion it's <clears throat> purpose and it's 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 not a good financial move business move um but apparently you see that a lot especially with the younger talent yeah yeah and i've, I've seen um yeah I've, I've seen a few different things you know somewhere um you know for example a um songwriter or an artist uh, could sell their writer's share of their performance uh, income or, uh, but it would just be like an outright sale, you know, for the rest of, you know, the rest of the time that income is generated. Um, or, you know, I've seen some other companies that, you know, they might kind of front load you some money and recoup it up to a certain amount per year so that the the artist um, or producer can still make some money from their revenue streams. Um, I think I think the key thing or the key piece of advice I would say is you know kind of watch out for the definitely what uh, Bob was saying was the ownership part of things. I would 
I would try to retain your ownership. I mean, I know that times are hard, um, but see if you can structure the deal uh, or have your lawyer structure the deal in a way that you're just kind of giving it for a certain amount of time, um, but that you still maintain those rights. Because I think it's something that people will regret later on if they just sell their rights to, um, to their copyrights. Yeah, and, and, and I, I kind of um, talk with my students in my class, my copyright class about the fact that copyrights are evergreen. A good hit will pay for generations, could even retire some families. So the last thing you wanna really look at, not that it should be taboo, but the last thing you should look at is a sale of it, um, unless you definitely realize that you don't need that additional revenue after you get that big fat check up front. Um, so five, 10 years later, when the income is still being generated from the song, you may not participate in it if you've sold all of your rights and the copyrights in it. So just be creative, talk with your attorney, and then find the most expedient, but also the most, um, the, let's just call it the wisest way to leverage this asset so that it does continue to create revenue for you for generations to come, to feed your family and feed your kids' kids and their kids' kids if you own it. Um, and you can't do that if you've sold it away, but just be creative in the structuring and how much you take and what the expectations are and make sure between you and your attorney who will read the fine print, you understand the fine print that they are now interpreting to you in plain English. Yeah, and uh, Kendall, mm -hmm. piggybacking off of that, um, things that I've seen recently, um, because of the whole, you know, the TikTok movement and, and uh, how people are, um, you know, all kids are like dancing to different songs. I'm seeing songs from like something that was a mediocre hit from the late 80s or 90s that will now become a massive hit, you know, in 2020. Um, so it's, it's funny because some of these artists, they're, uh, if, they, if they had maintained their copyright, um, which in a couple of cases that I've seen, they, they actually did have that copyright. Um, and they're like, they were, you know, very young back then. They're now like 50 years, 50 years old plus, but these songs are getting synced uh, on TikTok and suddenly they're seeing this big uptick in revenue. So I think it's, it's really cool, you know, so holding on to a copyright can be very beneficial. And not only that, but a song that you recorded back in the 90s or early 2000s, that could always get used in a movie trailer or, or in some kind of sync that suddenly pays out $100,000. You know, you never know. So um, ownership is key. So while we're on the publishing uh, conversation, let's just broaden it a little bit. If uh, you all could just share some of the more what I call significant changes to the structuring of publishing deals that are in the marketplace now versus what we were seeing five and 10 years ago. Um, well, I, I can start. Um, I think that, again, it's an ownership thing. Uh, you know, having, having the ability to either, uh, you know, before we were doing these, these MDRC deals, you know, we were negotiating these deals where the writer would basically just get stuck in a deal for forever. I mean, I have, I have uh, a friend of mine who he signed a 20 song MDRC back in the nineties and he was still in that same deal. And when I say 20 song MDRC, that means 20, 100% compositions. So for, you know, let's say you're a, a artist or a producer and you're only getting 50% of a song. I mean, that could be well over 20 songs. And then there's the caveat that these songs have to be released by a major. Um, now that, that example I gave was egregious, but um, there, you know, typically those MDRC deals were about, you know, four or five songs and it still takes a long, you're not going to get through it in one year usually. Um, so over the last few years, there's been a big shift for, uh, a lot of publishers to do term deals where they'll give you X amount of money and it has to be recouped within, you know, three years, like the latter of three years or recoupment. Um, so, but there's no contingencies. So I think those deals have gotten a lot more prevalent, but they would still take ownership of the copyright. So now what I'm seeing is a lot of publishers are now saying, instead of us taking your copyright forever, we'll, revert it back to you after five, 10, 12 years. Um, the other type of deal that's happening a lot is, is admin deals where 
um, you just, you know, you're not giving away your ownership and your copyright and, um, and you just, you sign up with a publishing company to collect on your behalf and to exploit the catalog and to try to sync the songs to TV shows, films, video games, and then you get it back at the, at the end of the, uh, the term or the retention period. Another shift that I'm seeing is that these publishers are not only asking to administer the musical compositions, but if you have ownership of the master, they are looking to um, administer the sound recording. Sound recording as well, which is a huge uh, shift. I, yeah, I've seen some of that as well. Yeah. Good. You guys hit it on the nail. Well, yeah. I agree with what you guys are saying. There's an additional change that was just uh, breaking news uh, regarding BMG as it relates to the mechanical royalty clause where they would typically collect. Uh, uh, will pay out on 75% of the mechanicals and retain the 25% and they're doing away with that. So the question is, will other publishers follow behind that? They're not, yeah, what, are they, they're not taking a percentage at all on the mechanicals? They're basically not, they're not, um, they're not claiming the, the 75-25 rule anymore. They're paying out on that full 100%. Well, that's the question. Are they going to be paying out on that full 100%? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, what I find and I have found over the years is that publishing and the exploitation of intellectual property, specifically copyrights, is the least understood portion of our business from the administrative business side for uh, creatives. It's easy for a lot of them to understand going in the studio, putting the record together, dropping it online, getting out on the, on the road and touring, getting up in front of a camera, doing the YouTube. But so many folks, even established artists, do not really understand the mechanics of publishing and what is sync versus a mechanical license versus a grand rights license. What is the MDR, MDRC that you were just talking about, which no longer exists? What are reversion rights? What rights do they have for termination? So I just implore everybody just to kind of take this as a footnote to baby, you know, really go into understanding some of the nuances of publishing. Um, for my class, for example, we use a book put out by Jeff and Todd Brayback, who many people in the business know, called Music, Money, and Success. And even though it's very, very lengthy, it's probably the most up-to-date, most comprehensive treaties on the music publishing business in America. So um, I would commend that to anybody for their reading and their information and uptick on this is what publishing is all about because when the record career is over, publishing and the revenues from publishing can live on and on and on just as what's being shared just a minute ago from a hit that was maybe a hit in the 70s and the 80s that's still generating significant revenue today because it's being sampled or interpolated and used in current songs and getting more passive income from something that was put out 20, 30 years ago. That's the business of publishing. Um, but let's pivot to the same question for record deals. No, actually, I, I did want to mention something else about the publishing deals that I've noticed. They are more uh, willing to um, work with you on the reversions. They're getting shorter and shorter, uh, the retention period. That's, that's huge. And uh, one thing that I don't know a lot of people realize on the admin side and you have to be you have to pay attention to the language in these admin deals a lot of the publishers are actually requesting to own one percent of the publishing so that they have the ability to claim market share and that that's what allows them to um be a presenter when they go to these award shows <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting, so, but you have to pay attention to the language to, to uh, recognize that. Yeah, it's really in the fine print and yeah. uh, why well, they pay you all the big bucks. <laughs> so, let's just talk about the same concept, but now let's flip it over to the record deal, whether it's indie deals or major deals. And if you all could just talk about licensing and distribution deals versus the traditional exclusive artist recording agreement, which is a production agreement or 
a regular record deal and what some of the significant changes over the past three or four years have been that you've seen in doing record deals for your clients? So uh, with respect to major record label deals, and obviously a lot of this has to do with the kind of leverage you have, you know, from the client, you know, uh, you know, is it one record label that's pursuing them versus two, three record labels that are pursuing them? Obviously, if you can get into a bidding war, it, it obviously puts you as the attorney in a better negotiating position. But one of the things that I've been able to negotiate and I see happening for some of my clients is one, uh, uh, instead of just getting a royalty, you know, 17, 18% royalty, I've uh, been able to negotiate a net profit share or net profit split. And this is with a major label, right? It's usually a 50-50 deal, of course, as we, whenever you're dealing with record labels, it's not always a 50-50 deal because they'll take a distribution fee on top to what's left over. But still, the client does significantly better than just getting a royalty deal. Um, also, in some instances, if the artist, uh, the client already has records out already in the marketplace, and a lot of the, a lot of the artists have been releasing EPs or you know, mixtapes or even other singles, the label oftentimes wants to be able to monetize those, but I've been able to get those um, particular pre-existing works licensed um, to the label as opposed to being owned outright by them. And so that after a certain period of time, seven to 10 years thereafter, after recoupment, um, it reverts back. In some instances, I've been able to get, I'm seeing some with respect to the, out to the masses that are being uh, 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 financed by some of the major labels, again, depends on the leverage, have been able to see them even considering, you know, reversions of the uh, ownership in the masters, usually for a longer period of time, but still the, the, the idea of getting uh, the artist getting the masters back, um, it seems like it's a little less resistant, the labels are a little less resistant than they once were. Um, also on the 360 component, been able to get either been able to eliminate uh, the uh, ancillary income percentage or um, structure it or negotiate in such a way that whatever they bring to the table, whatever the label or opportunity labels bring to the table, they'll get a percentage of. And the client's usually cool with that. If you're gonna bring us an opportunity, we'll take, we'll take a percentage of it. Um, so, and, and the advances of, you know, a lot of the, you know, the advances are, are pretty healthy, um, again, um, high six figures, seven figure advances. Um, I think it's really important to explain to the client one of the things that that a lot of clients to this day are still confused about is that they they equate an advance with a loan. They'll say, "Oh, I," you know, a few of them, not a few of them, I'll be like, "Oh, I don't want to get that much of an advance because then I want to pay it back." And I'm like, "Well, I have to consistently, you know, educate my clients that an advance is not a loan." And to the extent, given the now with the pandemic, things like this, if you can get, you know, the labels or publishing companies to give you, assuming the other deal, deal terms make sense, if they can give you a big fat advance or a bag as, as some of my clients like to say. Um, and then, then if you're smart with the bag in terms of investing it and all these kind of things, you're better off because at the end of the day, it's not a loan in, in, in the sense that if they, the label or the publishing company doesn't recoup the money, they're coming after your house, they're going to, they're gonna, you know, uh, uh, put put garnishment on your on your uh, or, or or put forfeiture order on your bank accounts. You know, it's very very important to explain to them the difference between an advance versus an outright, you know, loan, which is not like the kind of loan you get for the house. If you don't pay back your mortgage, the bank is gonna take your your house. So on the major record deals, major label deals, I'm seeing a lot of of more flexibility in a lot of the terms. So yeah. Vinny, you can jump in because obviously you have a lot of hands-on, real close expertise and day-to-day -day responsibility on the indie side. So if you can just kind of pivot because Bob was having a good conversation about some of the issues with major labels. How about the indies? Because you're, you're working with one of the top independent distributors. Sure. Well, the, um, you know, talking about the majors for a second, I think something, especially in this pandemic and, and, uh, Going back to what I was saying before, um, in terms of you know what people do during this pandemic, they want to release more music, you know, and I think that that's a problem now because if you're signed to a major, there's kind of you know 
they're gonna they're not gonna let you release anything you want. So we've been starting to see a lot of artists on majors kind of getting frustrated with not being able to kind of you know especially at, at this time have the freedom to do what they wanted to do. You know, so um, from an from an indie side, I think you know having the ability to control your own releases and control your own release dates is really is really appealing to people. Um, uh, you know, from our side at Empire, pretty much, I mean, all we do is, is license deals. Um, so it's not really an issue of, of ownership. And um, in terms of the other thing that I think that, you know, an indie, indie uh, distributor is able to do, there's, there's a little bit less red tape in, in terms of actually getting a release put out there. So for example, um, you know, certain th criteria has to be, be, be met, certain things have to be pitched by a certain amount of time, uh, certain teams have to have information. Um, but if we have something that, you know, let's say somebody's appearing on a podcast tonight or someone is going to be, we know that they're going to be doing something of relevance where music has to be up and ready to be distributed we have the capability to get it out there and, and ready to go within a day if we had to. I mean, that's not the ideal situation, but um, just being more nimble is kind of, I think, a really great advantage of being on, on the indie, indie side. So without putting you on the spot, I'll put you on the spot, <laughs> but I'll also spread it to, to Bernie and to Bob. Sure. I, you know, we represent a lot of independent clients, as Vinny was just talking about, so there's a lot of content got folks, you know, in their basement, their home studios, cranking out literally material every single day. So getting it up online is not a hurdle that it used to be, and it doesn't take rocket science these days to do it, but separating it from the rest of the thousands of tracks that were also posted online that day is a function of market share, awareness, marketing, and promotion. Mm -hmm. So how do our clients, how do your clients find either the money or the backup resources to market and promote their material once they have it up, that'll give it the metrics, the numbers, the credibility that it needs in order to move them up the food chain and create some revenue. Well, I don't think it's always like a money issue. I think if, for example, if you if you have a good relationship with not just Empire, but any district, who, whatever dist indie distributor, distributor you're with, um, having the marketing team pitch to the retailers. So I think that's, that's a very big key. If you can get, if you can get it on the, um, on the schedule to be pitched for, for your release date, then getting it pitched for, you know, front page of Apple music or on the hip hop section or rock section, or um, having it pitched for, for, you know, Spotify playlisting, um, uh, and then there's, uh, you know, other retailers, um, Tidal does a lot of stuff. Um, SoundCloud does a lot of stuff. Um, uh, Google play, like a, we had one artist have his song and face was on like the front of every, as soon as people opened the Google play app, um, they would see their song and it was, it was there for a month on everybody's phone. So I think, um, having a good relationship with your, with your distributor and getting them to pitch these things for you, I think is a very good thing. And then not only that, but um, now if, you know, if you take use of your Spotify for artists account um, as an artist, uh, you can now pitch to the editors yourself as well. So uh, send it to your distributor, get it, get it put into the system, set a release date, and then make sure you have enough time where you can pitch it to the editors at Spotify. You can do it right there from your Spotify for artists app and um, they'll listen to it. And if they like it, they're going to, they're going to feature it or they're going to place it in a playlist or like an official Spotify playlist. So, um, those are a few ways you can do it. I think without having, you know, the money to do so. Um, I wanted to add something, Kendall, uh, back to the previous things of, uh, when you asked Vinny and, and, um, Bob about what, you've seen changes that you've seen with the indies versus majors and some of the things that i'm seeing is that with the majors they are willing to be more flexible on the release commitment as it relates to um, the, the term period usually it's the latter of of uh, 12 months from the, the release of the product or nine months from the delivery date 
So I've seen them even shorten that period lately. Uh, another thing is that they're more flexible with the actual product commitment as well and are considering track equivalents where they're putting out singles, uh, EPs, if they, you know, they have more, the artist has more flexibility and it's not just an album uh, basis. You know, before it was like, okay, five album periods. So now they're considering a, a, a period to be track equivalents, like maybe 15 tracks or so. Um, and they can do, they have the flexibility to do whatever they want with those 15 tracks. That's becoming more common. So let me do a feedback. Thank you, Kendall. Uh, a footnote to that, and, and I'd ask all of you all to jump in because you all negotiate deals for your clients with major labels. A few, a couple of years ago, the estate of uh, Rick Nelson, which was, you know, a real popular 1950s artist, uh, sued Sony Entertainment. And they sued him basically because when they looked at their streaming royalty um, statements, they were recognizing that Sony was taking a significant slice, sometimes between 50 to 68% of the foreign revenues that were earned from streaming off the top as a, like an intercompany charge before the money got remitted to the United States. So that meant if you made a dollar from streaming overseas, by the time Sony and possibly other majors, but this was a lawsuit against Sony, by the time they took their intercompany charge, maybe 50 to 60% of it or less might be repatriated to the United States, which took a significant chunk. So given the fact that streaming constitutes the largest revenue share and marketplace for people consuming music today, how much time and energy do you all spend looking at the royalty provisions when it relates to the streaming revenues, the streaming platforms, and do you see any flexibility in your negotiations to improve the terms and the rates that your clients are getting in those deals? I think that's a, a, a valid question, um, Kendall, because uh, yes, we have been paying attention and that has been a point of, of um, negotiations for us. Um, and it's, it's a lot of back and forth, but um, I have seen them make some changes but it's definitely a, an issue uh, where they are, they do have um, some resistance. From my perspective, um, I'm not always a numbers guy. I've never been a numbers person per se. So what I would normally do is I would uh, engage uh, services of the business managers that I, that I constantly, that my clients, that represent a lot of my clients and kind of go through that clause with them, right? Um, and say, hey, you know, how does, you know, a dollar of income comes in, looking at this clause, and I have to sometimes translate it for them, but looking at this clause, what's my, what is my client getting, at, you know, as, uh, uh, you know, when all of these deductions and, you know, percentages and all that are taken out, right? And from there, I can go and try to push back. Um, because again, you know, I, I don't, you know, I get royalty statements sent to me and, you know, I'm like looking at these royalty statements, and unless I've been I'm my clients in the position to hire a forensic accountant, you know, uh, just looking at the statement, I, you know, I, I'm not challenging it. I'm like, all right, it looks it, they're, they're usually thick, thick, you know, hey, because I get the physical things, and I'm like, oh, well, I guess this must be right, you know. Um, so it's it's something that's that from the from the time I got into the business, and you know, from the time the music industry has been has been, been in existence, it's always been an issue, like. Are the numbers that you're seeing real? Um, you know, and uh, again, unless the client, I mean, I, I, we I have a client that wanted to engage a forensic accountant, and the minimum price was like, I think it was like $15,000, $25,000. And they're not guaranteeing you a result, right? Um, although, generally speaking, they're like, yeah, we're going to, there's, there's definitely, we, we will uncover some money for sure. For sure. Is it the same amount that you're paying us? Not sure. Right. So, but to the extent that I have clients that are successful uh, over a certain period of time, you know, we'll hire a, friend, a forensic accountant. Um, they're willing to pay the money to, to, to do an audit. That's the only way you're going to ever really know sure. if, if there's any monies that, 
somehow are, are mysteriously disappearing from your client's uh, uh, royalty account. And yeah. into uh, Ben um, Bob's point, I had a client who requested, you know, to, today they're giving out these summary statements. They're not even giving out the full statements anymore. Right. Client requested detailed statements. And when we got, <laughs> when we got the statements, over a thousand pages. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Unbelievable. Yeah, I've seen some clients <laughs> still come like this to the office. I'm like, what? That's crazy. Right. Um, oh, Kendall, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Vinny. Uh, no, no, you, you can finish your thought. Go ahead. Kendall, I was just going to go back to the question you asked about, um, um, you know, how, how, what are the clients doing as far as marketing and promoting, um, you know, their music or, or how the label is helping? I, I, f I find for me, well, my clients, I'm always trying to negotiate the sort of independent marketing or promotion monies that the client can control or have in their pocket because um, you bring up a good point with, with, with artists consistently releasing content. Um, and, and, and you're, you're on a label, but the label, for whatever reason, maybe your first single didn't do as well as it's supposed to be. So now you're no longer, you know, uh, the center of attraction. Um, you got to be able to position your client in such a way that they can continue to, to hire an independent promotion person for like TikTok. Or if it ever gets to that point where it's radio and radio still is very much significant, you know, you, you, you want to try your best in negotiating these deals that the artist has access to money that they can use to market and promote, um, whether it's hiring a PR person, social media person, TikTok, uh, YouTube uh, promotion, all of these various social media platforms have, you know, uh, folks and companies that focus on marketing on those platforms, you know, all the little tricks and all of that. So, so from that perspective, I think it's important that you, you know, the artists have uh, to the extent that you can you know, anywhere from fifty to hundred thousand dollars, you know, that they can control and spend on marketing their projects. Right, and obviously that that that, that fifty to hundred, with the caveat that you're talking about a deal with a major as opposed to an independent distributor, where right. that might be ten to twenty five grand. But the question is now, right. how do you allocate it to get the most effective, widespread use, putting the right people into the gig? as opposed to being taken for a ride by folks saying they can do something and then they don't deliver. That's a fact too. Yeah. 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 I'll say that's one con, you know, con of being with an indie is, is uh, you have to know how to spend your money um, because there's a lot of people who will just kind of promise you or sell you a dream and uh, you'll end up spending five, 10, 15,000 very quick with no, nothing happens, nothing happens. So, you know, um, being independent, Yes, you get your ownership and yes, you get to uh, kind of control things, but make sure you know what you're doing and, and have people around you who, who can advise you on how to spend your money properly. Yeah, definitely. And, it, and it's very important. Um, as we begin to wind down, I just want to kind of put you all on the spot individually, kind of peek into your library, your music library, not the law book, because that stuff is boring. But on the music <laughs> For each of you, what are your like your your top two tracks that you love, regardless of when they were released? I've been listening to a lot of dance music lately, um, and you know I go to Apple and if I'm in the gym, I, I put Dance XL, and you know I listen to the music and some of that. You know I, I'm a I'm a child of the '70s, so I grew up with disco, and so dance music kind of brings me back. To when to when disco uh, was was king, and you know uh, I'm trying to think about some of these. Um, uh, this this uh, let me tell you, I'll tell you right now. A couple of records that I really like. Uh, I think Paul Wolford has a record that's kind of dope. Um, there's also a dance version of uh, of uh, X's uh, "Sad" done by this guy Evan Beck, and "Looking for Me" by Paul. Wolford and Diplo, I think it's kind of dope. So, <laughs> and this is a little unexpected. And I try to listen to, you know, the, you know what the, the here's the, the sad thing. I, I, there was a point in time where I could listen to all my clients' music, but based on whatever, you know, what Vinny's been saying, and Bernie, they're putting so much records out that you, I just don't have the bandwidth to listen to all their music. 
just yeah i agree and, and for vinnie and bernie what's in your playlist um, i'm in savage mode too right now like, i can't yeah I, I, I listened to that actually last week that was good i mean yeah. earlier this week yeah, it was good. yeah snitches and rats <laughs> my dog I think that's <laughs> and mulatto you know I, I she's on my playlist as well queen queen of the south I, i'm rocking so cool um, for me, uh, there's, a, there's a female rap artist named Sarak. Um, I, I've been listening to her album. She's got a really cool track with uh, Black Thought, Black Renaissance. Um, and um, uh, Young Dolph, I listen to his stuff a lot. And um, I, had a, I had a good friend of mine who's a producer uh, recently passed, but he's super talented. I've been listening to his beats. His name is Tony Galvin. Um, and also a lot of uh, a lot of just bossa nova music <laughs> um, all right very very widespread i say yep. so what about you kendall <laughs> well you know what i'm gonna go old school on you um, <laughs> why am i not surprised <laughs> when, when, I, when i'm home chilling i love everything frankie beverly has done that's a fact yeah so frankie beverly is like ageless timeless um absolutely recently just because of the popularity of the song and I'll be honest and fantastic as she has looked on Saturday Night Live and other shows Megan Thee Stallion yeah <laughs> she's dope too she is dope she's put I, it all I, together I have, <laughs> I, I'm, I have uh, Jeffrey Osborne I listen to Jeffrey Osborne The Essential but I listen to that every day yeah, wow. yeah. every day I'm listening to that song. Yeah. not every day I'm just gonna listen to it so, I mean, that's, that's a great thing. I tell everybody that really music is the soundtrack of our lives and it's hard to go anywhere in public or around friends and family where somewhere music is not playing, which is why it's just so dynamic and exciting to be a part of this industry because it touches people globally and regardless of the language barriers, it has a sense of commonality that brings us all together as a people. Um, what I'd like to do is just offer you all each a couple of minutes a piece, just to just give a wrap up and a summary of jewels and thoughts that you would like to leave our audience with today. Bernie, you go first. <laughs> Never allow anyone to, to tell you that you can. Always believe in yourself because if you don't believe in yourself, no one else will believe in you. Very nice. Vinny? Um, it's just, it's kind of uh, what I was harping on earlier. I think that um, artists, songwriters, producers, you know, as much as you can try to try to keep ownership, you know, if, you know, stress to stress to your lawyers that when you're taking a deal, um, try to have some way to get some ownership back or try to have some kind of reversion. Um, you know, you may not get the same amount of money all the time, but uh, in doing a deal where where you're keeping your copyright, but um, I think it's a great thing to have in the long run. So, very nice, Bob. You're on um, mute. Cool. There you go. So, uh, kind of like piggybacking off what Vinny is saying, uh, when I do panels and seminars, I try to advise creatives that even if you can't afford to hire you know an attorney the one thing you can do to protect your creative work is to copyright your music cys copyright your shit okay uh at the at the very minimum you go to the www.copyright.gov um and and you know if you don't can't do it go on youtube they'll, they'll walk you through how to fill out the applications i think that's the single most important thing every creative can do um, because that's the foundation of ownership that Vinny was talking about, right? So if you can't afford to hire an attorney, um, you know, uh, but you've, you're, you're a creator, you're, you're a creative, you're creating music, you're creating, you know, art, whatever the case may be, head to the copyright office and register the copyright to your, to your, to your creation. Very good information. So without further ado, um, I would like to just say, you know, overall, networking is the key that connects creativity with success. Um, also on the professional side, if you're an executive or a lawyer or 
folks that are going to be on the business side, not in front of the camera or the microphone. Networking, 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 consume the information since it's so readily available and then put it into good use because that's going to mark the difference between a successful career and that one is just below the radar screen. So this is the perfect time. We've all been locked in for too long, um, but you know, be sure to do that. Also, I just want to make sure that everybody checks out the Living Legends YouTube channel. Um, this is a series of podcasts. Uh, it's Music Day. It's a verified hit. We are happy to today have been able to provide you with our wisdom and our jewels and nuggets as the legal eagles. Um, but there are so many more very significant episodes that are in this series. Don't miss any of them. Thank you for joining, everybody. Take care. Music Day, a verified hit, is presented by the Living Legends Foundation, Inc. Real talk with experience. Please follow and share Music Day on Instagram at Living Legends Foundation and at Music Day Podcast on Twitter at The LLF Inc. Join us on Facebook, The Living Legends Foundation. Executive producers are Jacqueline Reinhardt, Mark Hill, Ken Johnson, and Pat Shields. Our associate producers are Shannon Henderson, Sheila Eldridge, Tony Winger, Vivian Scott Chu, and Varnell Johnson. Production by Mark Hill Creative. Talent booking, Black.LLC. Theme music by Wendell Wellman for Star Maker Global. Interstitial music by William Reinhardt. And I'm your announcer, Jay Johnson.